Our current sermon series is uh, the Gospel of John, but we're going to take a one-week break from John and do something a little different today. Um, and you'll, you'll see that, what that is as we get into it. So uh, my wife likes to show this little home video that we have uh, to demonstrate and illustrate the difference between my father-in-law and me. Uh, when Sophie was uh, young, I don't know, maybe about a year, give or take, uh, my in-laws bought one of those, uh, I don't even know how to describe it now, what do we used to call that thing? Extra sauce? Uh, extra sauce? Is that it? Anyway, you know, you put, the, you put the toddler in it, and they can spin all the way around, and there are little things all the way around that make noise, and, and you can actually take this one apart and set it next to each other, and it becomes a train track. You know, you, it's basically something to put the kid in so mom can get something done is really what it is, and it just happens to keep them, uh, keep them busy, and it annoys you because it all has noise makers. So the il illustration uh, is that uh, while my father-in-law, he brought it, and he was going to put it together for us, and he takes everything out, and then he pulls the instruction manual out, and he reads every word of the instruction manner, manual, and she's got the camera on him as he's reading through the entire instruction manual. And it just worked out perfectly in God's providence that as soon as he got done at the very end of the instruction manual, he turned and looked, and I, had, I was putting the finishing pieces together. I'm done. <laughs> so while he's reading the manual, I did it. I put it together. That's the difference between me and him. He reads manuals. I just go and try to make it work. Uh, another difference is most of the things that he puts together, they really do work because he reads the instruction manual, and about half of what I put together works the first time. And then I have to go back and do it again, and do it again, and do it again. And now, as I get older and wiser, I find myself Googling instructions more than I used to, because I'd rather get this done in a hurry so that I don't have to waste time putting it together. And the, my approach is more like my father. When I get done putting something together, there's always three or four pieces left over. You know, and what do I do with those pieces, and are they going to be crucial to this? Today we're going to look briefly at a uh, sort of a survey of the book of Proverbs. And my goal here, we, we don't have time to go through all the Proverbs, and I'm not going to take the time to, to expound too many of them in depth, but my goal is to help us all be reintroduced to this wealth of instruction that is given to us by God this wealth of instruction called the book of Proverbs. You know, God created the, the world. He created the universe. He created uh, the earth. And he created it to work a certain way. In fact, the Greek word is a, the translated into English for the, the world is often cosmos. You've all heard that word. We know that word, cosmos. That's the Greek word for order in contrast to chaos. You want cosmos, you don't want chaos. You want order and structure, and you don't want everything to be frantic and crazy. And when ancient people began to describe this, what we call the world, one of the words they chose was order, because there's so much order in the world. And, and of course, scientifically, we know how gravity works and the seasons, right? We just entered the fall season, and everybody knows what's going to happen. Uh, the grass is going to start turning uh, brown. The trees are going to drop all their leaves and all of that because there's an order to this universe. But the book of Proverbs really gives us kind of a life hack, uh, how God wants 
order to be lived, how he wants us to live our lives in a certain order, and it oftentimes, most of the time, leads to a certain end. Now, when it comes to Proverbs, what some of you do is you immediately think of the exception, right? Anytime there's a proverb given, yeah, but, okay, so today, no yeah, buts, okay? All the yeah, buts have to stay outside in the hall because the book of Proverbs are, are, it contains general aphorisms that are generally true, but of course, God reserves the right at any time to do things differently than the way it normally happens. So my hope is to ignite a, a great passion in your life, in your mind, to read and study the Proverbs. Here's the way, the way we tend to approach Proverbs. We read it in our Reading Through the Bible in a Year program, and so you have to read a chapter a day. You can't read the chapters, I can't read Proverbs a chapter at a time. That's not how it works. You know, there's a few longer sections, but by and large, it's just one verse that's all by itself, it's isolated. The best way to gain from the Proverbs is to go slow, pick one, and really meditate. Think about it. What's going on here? And the heart and soul of the Proverbs are metaphors. There's lots of, uh, lots of crazy metaphors that, uh, that seem to stick. And every culture, by the way, has, has metaphors. I mean, the Proverbs. Every culture does. You've heard of Chinese Proverbs and Indian Proverbs and other groups, right? America has our Proverbs. Early to bed, early to rise, makes one? Yeah, you know that one, right? Many hands make? Yeah. My dad used to say, nothing ventured, nothing gained. He usually did that when he made a mistake, right? <laughs> hey, if nothing ventured, nothing gained. He also had one that I like to say to my kids a lot, because uh, they're thinking, oh, I don't need that, I won't take it. My dad used to always say, uh, better to have and have not need than to have need and have not. That'll, some of you will get that later on. It, it makes good sense, yeah? Right? The book of Proverbs was largely written. There are, there are a few that weren't written by Solomon, but by and large, they were written by King Solomon. Now, you don't want to follow King Solomon's lifestyle in every way, but you realize, save Jesus Christ himself, Solomon is the wisest man who ever walked this planet. God said so. You probably remember the story. Solomon, when he became king, he very wisely said to the Lord, I need your help. And the Lord showed up to him in a vision and said, ask me anything you want. You get one wish. You know, I, I like to tell people that God's not a genie in the sky and you're not Aladdin. But in this case, it's kind of like that. He showed up to Solomon and he said, one wish, I'll grant anything you ask. And Solomon very wisely said, give me wisdom. And God was so pleased, he said, not only because I'm pleased with you, I will give you what you asked, but I will also give you wealth, and I'll also give you power and, and triumph over your, your enemies, but I'm going to make you so wise that there won't be anyone like you after you. The wisest man to ever walk this earth, and in God's providence and grace, he wrote down his wisdom in this book that is worth our time. So we're going to walk through a few of these just to um, maybe... Uh, strike a, a taste in your mind again. So, uh, like I said, one of the things that is, uh, that is so great about Proverbs is the, the analogies, the illustrations, the metaphors. Here's one of them, for instance, that you may know, if I have this turned on. Did I do that or did you do that? Okay, good. It's working. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. You sit and meditate on that a while, you, you, you get the picture, right? A door goes back and forth, 
and a, a, a lazy person just all day long, tossing and turning, tossing and turning on his bed, and he's not getting anything done. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish, but will not even bring it back to his mouth. How lazy is that? Strawberries, I'm hungry. Oh, but it's just so much work. Ugh, I just can't do it. Right? It sticks with you as, you as you think about those things. I love this one. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout. You got that image? Ooh, I didn't expect any men to say amen to this. Is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. All right, I'm moving on. All right, men, don't amen too fast. A quarrelsome wife is like a constant dripping on a rainy day. Drip, 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 drip. Restraining her is like restraining the wind or grasping oil with the hand. Ladies, I didn't write these. This is the inspired word of God by the Holy Spirit. I'm just, I'm just giving us, catch, capturing the, uh, the heart of the analogies that, that work. All right, so let's take a little bit of time with a few of these. This is the beginning. This is everything at the introduction of Proverbs is leading to this. This is so, sort of sets the entire tone for the book. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Knowledge can be gained even by atheists, right? When we think of knowledge in terms of facts, in terms of just understanding uh, math tables and those kind of things, okay, anybody can learn those. You don't have to be a, a believer to learn scientific facts. But that's not what the Bible's talking about. That's not what Solomon is talking about here. True knowledge puts all of those facts into the broader context of this cosmos that God has created, and wisdom starts with really believing in and being in awe of the Lord himself. That word Lord is the word Yahweh. That's the old covenant name for God. If you're going to have true wisdom and discernment and make wise decisions, you must Know the Lord and fear him and know that someday you're going to give an account to him for your life. That will motivate you to live well and to do what he's called you to do, to, to think about that day. Now, the way we're supposed to handle Proverbs is, when you come across one like this, is to ask yourself the question, do I fear him? I know God exists. I've been a Christian for a long time, I have that intellectual knowledge, but day in and day out do I focus on the fact that he is the king of kings, the Lord of all lords, and I am someday going to stand before him and give an account. That will drive you to make decisions that are wise and discerning. That's what we should, how we should apply this one. The next two verses, Solomon says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. All right, there are two principles we need to get. Number one, parents need to be teaching their kids. It's not our place to hand this off to the schools. It's not our place to hand this off to the church, to pastors. We as parents, it's our job, teach your kids. But the instruction here is to children. Now, Solomon is writing to his adult son here, so it doesn't ever stop. My kids, I'd never stop being your dad. 
and I'm going to take Solomon's advice, and I'm going to continue to teach you forever and ever and ever. And Solomon says, listen to your dad. See, it's not me, Solomon, telling you this. Indeed, they, the instruction of your parents, are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. In that culture, the wreath would have been the, the, the trophy, the, the, the sign that you have finished and won the race. Uh, it's it's the, uh, the gold medal, like in the, in the Olympics kind of thing. If you listen to the instruction of your parents, children, you'll win. You'll be successful as God designs success, as he defines it, rather. Listen to our parents. Uh, it, we all go through this phase somewhere in adolescence. We've all been there, and your kids will be there too, where they think they know everything, at least they talk like they know everything. But in God's economy, they will probably come back around and see that mom and dad actually know a few things. Don't ever stop teaching, and, and children, don't ever stop learning, no matter how old we are. Uh, you know, I'm heading up near 50. My, my father passed away earlier this year. I learned a lot from him up until the end of his life because he was that much further down the path and had been walking with the Lord that long. And I want the crown. I want to get the gold medal in life. Again, on wisdom, how blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. As you're meditating on, on this, the words you need to key in on are finds and gains. You don't accidentally stumble upon to wisdom. It's something you have to search for, something you have to work toward. It takes effort to really think and pray and say, Lord, show me how to please you. Show me the right decisions to make in this situation. Find that wisdom. Gain it. Pursue it. It's hard when we are so distracted by noise all the time. One of the best things we can do is put our devices down, keep the TV off, and think. And ask for wisdom and think. And let the scriptures go through our minds. Say, Lord, teach me wisdom. You need to find times and locations to get away, to pull away and meditate and reflect and let the Spirit of God teach you wisdom. If you've got stuff going all the time, if you always got the, the earbuds in your ear, every time you get in the car, you pop on music. Every time you go for a walk, you pop in music or a podcast or something. You're filling your ears with something, but that's not the same thing as finding and gaining wisdom. I'm a preacher. I preach for a living. I'd love to know that there are people all over the place listening to my sermons over and over and over and over again. But I watch the plays on Vimeo. It's not happening. So you're filling your heads with something else. But even my sermons, as much as I try to be accurate and, and faithful here, there's a better use of your time, not now, but sometimes, than listening to sermons over and over and over again. Sit alone and quiet and seek wisdom for the Lord. He says, wisdom, her profit is better than the profit of silver, and her gain better than fine gold. Here's Solomon, a very wealthy man, who said, better than all the riches you can attain is finding wisdom. 
Not everyone in this room is ever going to be rich. We're just not. But we can all gain wisdom. Find it. Seek it. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire compares with her. Here he's personifying wisdom as a her, saying, of all the things that you could have and enjoy, nothing is greater than wisdom. Making good decisions. Living out this life the way God intends for human beings to live out this life. This is not esoteric. This is not uh, uh, hypothetical and theoretical. These things are very, very practical, deciding day in and day out to do the things that God tells us to do. Once again, he says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You can't really understand how this world works. You can't understand politics. You can't understand school systems. You can't understand jobs, practical things. You can't understand where it all fits and how to do life right unless you fear the Lord. And he says, if you do, by me, by wisdom, your days will be multiplied and years of life will be added to you. Now, see, here's where some of you have got your yabbits prepared. There are people who live godly lives in wisdom and they die young. Didn't Jesus die young? Yes. But by and large, generally speaking, the way the order of the world works, if you live life the way God tells you to, you'll live longer, and he will multiply blessing to you. Think about how much illness is caused by stress. A lot. Ulcers, sleepless nights, panic, fears. All of that, humanly speaking, plays into our lifespan. But if you have wisdom and you're trusting the Lord, you can avoid many of those things by doing life His way. The fear of the Lord leads to life, see? So that one may sleep satisfied, untouched or unvisited by evil. If you're fearing the Lord and walking in His ways, you're not up at night worried about things. God's got this. My conscience is clear as I put my head on my pillow because I'm fearing the Lord as I live. I can sleep and rest knowing He'll take care of me. Now, some of us have sleep issues that are not related to the wrong to these things. Uh, some of us have wives who talk in their sleep at 2 a.m. every morning. I'm not going to name anybody who might be there. And then my mind starts rolling and uh, I start thinking about things. So I don't sleep as well as I could, but it's not because I'm, a, I'm not fearing the Lord. Like, so maybe it is. I don't know. Maybe I should do some own self-evaluation. So just because you don't sleep well doesn't automatically mean you're failing at this. I'm preaching to myself here, encouraging myself. Just give me a moment if you would. But think about how restful your conscience can be if you're fearing the Lord. That's going to add years to your life, humanly speaking. Wisdom is in the presence of the one who has understanding, but the eyes of the fool are on the ends of the earth. We know these people, right? Always looking for something and never focusing on anything. Always looking around. They don't see what's right there in front of them. Dreamers. Solomon called them fools. 
The eyes of the fool are always looking off in the distance somewhere. No, those who have wisdom see what's right here, and they live. All right, so those are a lot of the, uh, the, the, pract- the, the foundational proverbs, and there's much more like that in the, in the book. But let's get a little more practical here. Very practical for relationships. He who blesses his friend with a loud voice early in the morning, it will be reckoned a curse to him. So I went on my honeymoon 27 years ago, had a great time with my new bride, came back, and I worked retail at the time. We started at 10 o'clock. I needed to be there about quarter till. I left, you know, got up uh, 9.30, right? In and out of the shower in five minutes, I'm there on time to work my retail job. Krista and I only had an hour of premarital counseling. And the pastor did not go over these kind of things. We get home from our honeymoon, and 5 a.m. Monday morning, she springs up, opens the curtain, says, hello, world. And I went, what have I done? This is never going to work. I didn't curse at her. But if I'd have known this proverb then, I would have said, you, with a loud voice early in the morning, it will be a curse to you. Solomon says so. When you get up in the morning before everybody else, shh. Practical life hack for all of you. Shh. Don't wake everybody up. They won't like you very much. Relationships are on the line here. Oh, how we need to learn this one. The first to present his case seems right till another comes forward and questions him. You know, we we talk a lot about gossip. The Bible talks a lot about gossip. And you should not be the one spreading things that are not true or that are intentionally going to cause friction. But on the receiving end, first of all, you shouldn't listen to it if if, if it's somebody telling something out of school. But also you need to realize all of us have a bias. Every single one of us. When we hear somebody say something, our initial response is, their side of this story is right. And we assume they're right. And we go along with it. Until you hear the other side. And then you think, oh, now what do I do with this? Those of us who do counseling, and and really all of us do counseling of some sort, if you're meeting with a couple or a couple people who just don't get along, be very, very careful. Be on your guard that the first person who gets to present their case, that you do not assume they're telling you God's truth. Because we don't do that. None of us do it. We all share things from our perspective. We're going to make ourselves look better than we really are. I always tell people there's three sides to every story. There's his story and her story and God's story. And you can't assume either one of them are being unbiased only God knows what really happened. And your job when you try to help reconcile for, uh, people who are struggling is to figure out what, how do we work forward here, but don't be too quick to listen to the first one. More generally, be very careful to the media you listen to. You realize that the, the news networks and the, the news on your Twitter feeds and Facebook and such, they all have a business model where they are trying to get clicks. 
Objectivity and unbiased news reporting is almost completely gone in our day. Maybe it exists in the past. I don't know if it did or not. When I was young, I assumed news people were just reporting the facts, man, ma'am, just the facts, right? That is long gone. And you may think your news outlet is just telling the truth. I doubt it. Don't be naive to assume that any of the, the talking heads are going to give you the true story all the time. Be careful. Make sure you find a way to find the other side as well. Relationships can get all out of whack when you hear one side and not the other. Good practical advice from Solomon. Here's another one similar. For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, contention quiets down. See the analogy? It's obvious. If you want to keep the fire going, you have to put more wood on the fire. If you want to keep fighting going, keep talking about people. But if you want the fighting to go away, stop talking about others. Stop whispering. He said this. She did this. Hey, did you hear about what so-and-so said, what so-and-so did? And now you're causing contention to go on in the body of Christ. God has some very strong words in other places for those who cause factions between brothers. In fact, in the book of Proverbs, God says, I hate this. This is abominable to me when someone stirs up strife between brothers. Don't be a whisperer, except at 5 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> the rest of the time, just don't spread things that are not helpful. Think about this one. He also who is slack in his work is brother to him who destroys. Meditate on that for a moment. He who is slack in his work is brother to him who destroys. So imagine you work on a, a window crew. Your, your job is to put windows in houses. And, and you get half the project done, you go home for the night, you come back the next day, and you see that someone has thrown rocks through half your windows. That's frustrating. That's discouraging. That slows down productivity. That's costing the homeowner more money, or, or you, if, it, if it's part of the package you offered them, then you, you just have to eat it if you're the, the business owner. Solomon here is saying, if we are lazy and don't do the job we are called to do, if you don't put in as many windows as you should, as you could, when you're installing them, it's, it's akin to, it's brother to those people who came in the middle of the night and threw rocks to the window. You realize if you're employed and you're not doing your work with all earnestness, you are robbing from your employer. They've agreed to pay you this much and you've agreed to produce this much. And if you could produce that much, but you don't because you're lazy and on Facebook all day, watching sports, whatever, you're stealing from your employer. You're a brother to the one who actually destroys property. God values hard work and doing what we are hired to do. It's good. It's pleasing to him. It's how we should operate. In all labor, there is profit. 
but mere talk leads only to poverty. You know those people. Dreaming, every day it's a new dream. Every day it's a new way they're going to make money. Every day, today I'm going to do it. Well, not today, tomorrow I'm going to do it. Because tomorrow, I've got an even better day, but I, a better idea, but I can't do it today, but I'm going to do it tomorrow. Talk, 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 nothing. Because they're not doing anything. Just do something. Work. We're called to work. Get after it. There's profit in all labor. It may not be the most profitable thing you could do, but get after it, Solomon would say. Have you thought about how much Solomon got done in his life? If you read the opening couple of chapters of Ecclesiastes, the man was, was Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and I don't know, whoever else you want to put it, all the billionaires, he was all of them. That guy got more done probably than anybody in the history of the world when you realize what he got accomplished. He was always working, always working hard. Again, he's not the model for everything, like marriage, like faithfulness to God. But this part he got right. He didn't talk about getting stuff done. He got it done. He pursued labor. Millennials get a bad rap. Oh, they get a rap. I don't know if it's bad or not in our culture, right? As the stereotypical millennial is lazy, doesn't get anything done. Well, who raised those millennials? There's plenty of blame to go all the way around. The bottom line is it doesn't matter. You don't get to blame anybody. Don't blame your parents. Don't. Just get after it and do something with your life. That's what Solomon says. The sluggard says there is a line in the road. A line is in the open square. What's the intent of that? Can't go out of my house and do anything because I might get eaten. Right? We make up excuses not to work hard. Don't be afraid. Go do it. If you're supposed to do it, go do it. And, the, you know, we don't, we don't make up that kind of excuse. Maybe we're not really afraid, but we come up with all kinds of reasons not to work hard. And there's a lot of good productivity for God, both in the church and for general uh, worldly uh, productivity that's not getting done because people don't do it. Get after it, he says. Prepare your work outside and make it, ready for your, make it ready for yourself in the field afterwards, then build your house. Now, you got to think on that one for a minute. Once you get it, I think it'll be pretty clear. Prepare your work outside. So imagine you're, you're in an agrarian culture, not, not our kind of culture, but uh, you have to work on a farm kind of thing. You have to grow your own food. That's, that's the setting here. If you get a plot of land and you go build your house first, you're going to starve to death. Because you don't build a house in a day, and if it's the time to be planting, you need to be planting so that you have something to eat come harvest time. So the, the instruction here is, go clear the field, work the field, plant your food, get it all set up so that the, the natural process is it's growing while then you go build your house to live in and you have food come harvest time. So the modern application would be, don't go buy a house and a car and an iPhone and all those things you want when you don't have any money. We live in a culture that has this upside down, doesn't it? 
go just take out a loan for everything. That costs us when we go take out a loan for everything. No, get your income and then build your house. Get income coming in and then buy your gadgets and that kind of thing. Good practical wisdom there. Sluggard, how many times have we seen the word sluggard so far? And this is just a smattering. Laziness is not unique to our generation. It is apparently a very big problem even in ancient Israel, such that Solomon has to address it over and over and over again. The sluggard is wise in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. Have you ever been around someone like this? They don't do anything, but they know better than everybody else. Don't be like that, he says. Seek the input from others. Seek counsel from others. Don't be lazy. Follow some advice and get after it. He who works his land will have abundant food, but he who chases fantasies lacks, with, uh, lacks judgment. Again, similar to the, one who, the fool who looks on the horizon. Uh, every day there's a new, new thing, a new concoction in our head, a new invention, and nothing ever gets done. Now, the, the, That's not to say there's no place for inventive people and trial and error and all that, but at, at least inventors who are truly making things that fail, they're trying to get something done. They're, they're doing stuff. And, you know, Thomas Edison talked about how many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of inventions didn't work, but then some did, and it changed the world. He was not lazy at all. He just had a lot of learning opportunities from the, the failures. This is talking about the one who never does anything, except think about what he might do someday, dreaming, chasing fantasies. You know, there's a whole industry of people who've made a lot of money telling people how to chase their fantasies. Buy my book, come to my seminar, go, do my, my online webinar, uh, and I'm getting rich, getting you excited about the fantasies that you're never going to actually follow through on. A lot of these gurus, work, he says, work your land, and you'll have abundance of food. Get after it, do some work. The ritual over the poor and the borrower is servant to the leader. How many? Lender. Lender, yes, thank you. Just seeing if you were all paying attention. Five of you are, thank you. How many of you know who Dave Ramsey is? I should have asked the opposite. Who doesn't know? Dave Ramsey has made a fortune and built an empire just getting people to read this verse. It's crazy that it took a man like him to get Christians to just do what the Bible says. This is all, this is, his entire business is based on this verse, and he's right. The borrower is servant to the lender. If I have wealth and I loan you my wealth, now you're indebted to me, and I have a certain power over you. And again, our culture just drives this home. Borrow, 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 borrow. I fell prey to it in college. My parents didn't have credit cards. I didn't know what a credit card was, literally, when I entered college. Never heard of it. I mean, I'm sure I've heard of it, but I just, and I'm sitting in class one day, and up on the ledge in our, in our college class is this application for credit cards. I picked it up, looked at it. Oh, that sounds, that sounds good. I applied, no questions asked, boom, I get a credit card. What do I do? I go to the store. 
and I buy the stereo that I wanted. And then I bought this, and I bought that, and I bought that, and I bought that, and I bought that thing again. All I have to do is send them 25 bucks a month, and I get all this stuff. Isn't that great? I mentioned something to my dad. He's like, you did what? Oh, what kind of son have I raised here? You don't have that money. You don't, you, you don't have any money. Why do you have all this stuff? Well, a credit card, Dad's like magic. That's not how it works, is it? You know how much I, I bought a $500 stereo? You know how much I paid for that $500 stereo for the next seven years? A lot more than 500 bucks, right? And if they had come calling, if, if, when you get yourself head over heels, nah, that's the wrong expression. When you get yourself in heavy debt and all those people come calling, you can, your whole life can be turned upside down. If we follow his wisdom, we won't get into debt like that. You might not have the stereo. You can live without the stereo. I could have lived without the stereo, I think. An inheritance gained hurriedly at the beginning will not be blessed in the end. Parents, consider this when you're forming your wills for your children. I had a very wise attorney walk me through this as we were preparing our will the first time, and he said, do not leave everything to your kids in one lump sum on the early end. And here was my response. Says, well, I don't know if I said this too much out loud, but I'm like, you don't know my kids. I mean, my kids are... My kids are better than those other kids. They wouldn't go blow all their, their money at the time. And, you know, they need it early on if, if something happens to us. And he said, I can tell you story after story after story after story after story of parents who regret leaving, well, I guess they're gone, they, of kids <laughs> who squandered their inheritance early on. And he's arguing all from a scientific, you know, their frontal lobes are not formed and all this. Uh, but as I was listening to him, I thought, yeah, even my kids might be tempted to spend it all on Taco Bell or something. <laughs> so don't give, don't leave everything to your kids early on. Wait till they get wiser and we'll spend it for better use. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Now, we know this is true with God, but it's also true among us. Far better to admit your sin against someone else and ask their forgiveness. Confess when you've done something that is offensive to someone else. Most of the time, especially if you're dealing with other Christians, you're going to find they're generous, they're compassionate, they'll forgive you, and then the relationship can continue on in good manner. But when we want to make excuses, defend ourselves, Pretend like it, we haven't actually committed an offense, then we cause friction, and our lives are not as, as uh, cordial as they could be with others. We need to be people who are willing to confess our, our faults. Fear of man will, be, will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. All right, be honest with yourself here. How much do you fear the opinions of others. How many decisions do you make or not make because of what somebody else might think? It's a temptation for all of us. 
And Solomon here says, if that's your mindset, if you're worried about other people and what they think of you, it will prove to be a snare. It's a trap. You're going to fall in, and you're going to need help out of it, and you're not going to get things done, and, and you're not going to do the things God's called you to do because you're too worried about what people think. I mean, Jesus is our exhibit A here. As we've seen to the Gospel of John thus far, he didn't care what the Pharisees thought of him. He didn't care what his disciples thought of him. He didn't care what his best friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, thought of him. He didn't care what his mother thought of him. Children, don't take it too far. But he said over and over again, my one concern is to please my heavenly father. And the opinions of man, he just didn't care. It's not what drove him. And that's what Solomon says. If you trust in the Lord, you'll be kept safe. Now, he doesn't say, if you trust in the Lord, everybody will like you. But too often, that's our motivation. I want people to like me. I don't want anything, anybody to talk bad about me or think bad about me. Well, what does God think? Has to be our primary concern. Number one concern. Keep us from doing all kinds of things that we regret later. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. Again, time for some internal honesty. Is there anybody out there, a celebrity, someone who's successful, an unbeliever, you think, man, they've got the good life. They got it good. Whether it's you know, fame or fortune or just success or opportunities, and you think, uh, I'd give anything to be them. Don't go there. Don't go there. Fear the Lord. What matters is pleasing the Lord, not being like somebody else. Keeping your eyes on the next age and the reward that's coming. The, the most successful, wealthy, profitable, unbeliever in the history of the world will have nothing compared to what we have in the next age. Riches and wealth and success and prosperity, it is coming for all of us. Every desire fully met in the next age. In the meantime, we fear the Lord and don't envy those who have it better than we do. Relationships, oh, I wish I could have relationships like they have. Don't go there. Envy is, is a besetting sin for so many. An evil man is snared by his own sin, but a righteous one can sing and be glad. We know how this works. You're sinning against someone, maybe your spouse, children, friend, and your conscience is heavy because you know what you're doing is wrong. Maybe it's a private sin that only you know about, you and God, and you know God knows about it, and your heart is heavy, and you're weighed down with guilt and shame. And you come into Sunday morning, and you don't sing much. You don't have a smile on your face because you know that he knows that you're sinning. Get rid of it. Repent. Confess to the Lord. Receive forgiveness. Go, go reconcile with someone if you need to. Feel the forgiveness of the Lord. You are objectively forgiven when you confess and ask for it. Feel that, and you'll come in here, and you'll sing, and you'll be glad, and everybody will see it on your face. 
Everybody sees the other on our face too. You know, we just can't hide that. You think you're hiding it. I think I'm hiding it, but people see it. Like, duh. There's a heaviness there. Hmm, wonder what's going on. He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. When we pull away from others because we don't want anybody speaking into our lives, that's selfish. And people can pull away. We, we do that when we're sinning, don't we? We don't want to be around others because we know that there's a potential that it'll expose our sin. He says, you're seeking yourself. You're seeking your, your own interests when you do that. We need to be with people. We need to be with other Christians. And we need to seek sound counsel from others so we can be free of that sin and walk in gladness. Last one. The heart knows its own bitterness and a stranger does not share its joy. Again, think about that one for a minute. We're often pretty sure we're reading other people correctly. We draw conclusions very quickly on, on where somebody else is, what they're doing, what they're thinking, what's going on in there. But Solomon says, you don't really know. We know our own bitterness, and that may be sinful bitterness, or it may just be our sense that life is rotten right now, which may lead to, to sinful bitterness. But there are a lot of people that you, you don't know all that's going on in their heart. So don't assume that you do. And a stranger can't share a, a person's joy. We Only we know what's really going on inside. So be very careful uh, not to assume you have got someone else figured out. And don't be upset with other people when they don't empathize with you the way you want. Because you see and hear and feel everything inside, and that just does not come out clearly for everybody else. So be patient and gracious with others who, who don't get excited about what you get excited about or don't, uh, they don't seem to mourn with you the way you want to be mourned with or, or, or whatever. Uh, that's selfish at the end of the day. They're not doing what I want. They're not meeting my needs. They're, they don't know me. Well, we can't really know each other to the level that we sometimes want because so much of that takes place on the inside. Anyway, that's just a smattering of Proverbs. Uh, and I know, you know you're not going to take home a, a ton from that. But here's my hope for us. I would love to know that we all decide from this day forward to take one proverb a day and meditate on it. Fathers, teach your kids once or twice a week. Just pick a proverb and, and talk about it. Figure out what the metaphor means. And let's ask, how can we act, live life, in the orderly way that God has designed us to live. It'll please him, and it, by his own testimony, it will bring lots of blessing in our life. It's the word of God written to us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the New Testament tells us that you are the wisdom of God. So we look to you as our example in these things, and we learn from you as you have taught us more in the Gospels and the epistles of the New Testament. So we want to read all of these things through a Christ-centered lens. But Father, sometimes we can get so theoretical 
and philosophical that we don't just live practically the way you've instructed. So help us, Father. Make us proverbial men and women who learn from you and fear you and live life the way you designed it to be lived. We pray this in Jesus' name.